This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. On October 1st, which is this Friday, Kauai County's new ordinance to begin collecting the hotel room tax goes into effect. The Garden Owl has scrambled to make up for the loss of the state allocation of the TAT, the Transit Accommodation Tax. Initially, counties thought it could work out a memorandum of understanding to have the state tax office collect it, but the Attorney General's office said it wasn't legal. Earlier this month, Kauai County uh, Council passed an ordinance that allows it to begin raising the current 10.25 transient accommodations tax by up to 3%. Mayor Derek Kawakami signed it into law so the county could begin collecting the tax as soon as November 1st. Maui County took its first step and passed a similar measure at first reading just a week ago, and Hawaii County's Deputy Finance Director says it's massaging its plan and will likely follow the other counties uh, using 89-day temporary hires to staff up as it needs to. We talked to Honolulu Mayor uh, Rick Mangiardi earlier this month about the status of the city's efforts. We are working very closely with council. You know, we took a position on 682 in favor of it. We anticipated that the override would happen if the governor vetoed it. All that stuff played out. You know, that works hand in glove with us with respect to what we're going to do in short-term rentals, which is sort of the quid pro quo, which we've also now gone through the planning commission. We've developed an ordinance here. We've changed the law that, as I was told by a group of hotel operators in the other day, is really the gold standard for the entire industry. We're about to do that, I think, primarily in the beginning. It's really going to affect, once you get done with the plan commission, get through council, it's really going to affect residential neighborhoods. But to your question about TAT, we're working out the details on the allocation. If you remember, when we did get that TAT allocation before from the state, it was to cover a really serious operating net with the city, which was, at that point, about $46 million. So if you stop and think for a second, let's just say the number was 6 million visitors a year to Oahu, 500,000 people a month renting cars and putting a lot of pressure, uh, additional pressure on our resources, infrastructure, et cetera. That's what those monies were sort of designed to do was so we could help deal with that. We still have that operating nut, irrespective of where tourism is in the moment. Tourism will be very much a part of our future uh, sooner rather than later. And and so we have that that to maintain. And uh, so we have that, and then it will be a question of how we allocate the remainder of those monies. Now, the Honolulu Planning Commission is to meet tomorrow to vote on the proposed vacation rental bill, which we just heard Mayor Blangiardi reference. And this morning, we talked with Honolulu City Council Chair Tommy Waters about the hotel room tax hike and other hot-button issues in his district, which covers from Alamoana and Waikiki to Hawaii Kai. Let me start by saying House Bill 862 basically took away about $100 million from the city and counties throughout the state, of which Honolulu annually received about $44 million. So that's gone. $44 million that we use to repair our roads, our sewers, our parks, kicking up garbage, our lifeguards, police, fires stormwater and streams, all these typical things that are paid for by Honolulu taxpayers, or excuse me, by this TAT that, that helps out to pay for these, these bills that we have, is gone. So we need to make that up. So House Bill 862 authorized each county to impose an additional 3% TAT tax on hotel rooms. So I've drafted the bill. It's sitting on my desk. I, I'm working with the mayor to make sure that we're on the same page. I want to make sure the council's on the same page so that this goes through as expeditiously as possible. And and we do want to try to get it done by the end of the year. And any bill that passes the council needs to go through three readings through the entire council. So. We only meet, the entire council only meets once a month. So the first one would be October 6th. If, if we're going to get it done by the end of the year, we need to get it in by October 6th. So I owe the mayor a phone call today just to make sure that he's on board with this. And I may need his help whipping some votes amongst some of the council members who may be a little uh, apprehensive to do it. Um, you know, the Sunshine Law prohibits me from going out there whipping votes myself. So 
I need to rely on the mayor to get out there and, and support the bill. And the mayor did tell us that, you know, this is part of a, you know, kind of a one-two punch. You know, he has the uh, vacation rental bill over at the Planning Commission, and he thinks the two need to move forward in tandem, expanding the resort districts for vacation rentals and then moving ahead with this uh, hotel room tax bill. Well, the hotel industry is not going to be happy about the 3%. But I guess how what he's saying, and I agree with this, that, you know, if we can, if we can clamp down on the illegal short-term rentals and make all the tourists go into our resort zone areas like Waikiki, then the hotel industry, you know, we make up for it in, in a way, I guess is what he's thinking. I don't know if they need to actually go hand in hand. We could do them because I have to wait for the planning commission to, to make their decision before it comes to the council. And if we're going to pass this CAT this year, I need to introduce it bill by the end of the week. Right. That's the priority. That's the priority. Correct. I will say that short-term rentals is also a priority, both of the administration and, and the council. Well, yeah, that has been the hot button for 30 years, you know, here on Oahu. I, I don't know what your thoughts are. You know, you've got to wait f- for the Planning Commission to kick it over to the council. But uh, any just general thoughts about expanding the resort district uh, in Waikiki to include, you know, everything Malka of Kuhio and then also the Gold Coast? Great question. You know, I've been taking a poll uh, amongst my constituents because, of course, I represent Waikiki. And there's about 25,000 local residents living in Waikiki. And folks live there because you're living right next to one of the most beautiful beaches on the island and you're dealing with tourists every day. But what I'm told is they don't want tourists in their apartment buildings, right? Could you imagine? waking up to go to work in the morning, having a sand-filled hallway with, um, with you know, towel, wet towels and, and beach gear all over the place. And those are the kind of complaints that we've been getting on these illegal rentals. So I do not support the extension of the uh, resort area to include all of Waikiki. And, uh, you know, we're trying to find out what this means to different communities as well, you know, up in Makaha, uh, Ku'ulima, uh, Ko'olina. But, uh, again, you know, we'll just wait to see what the Planning Commission decides and then how the council members decide to, to tweak this bill. You know, I don't have a problem with perhaps extending the resort area to the Malka side of Kuhio Avenue. There already are many hotels on Malka Kuhio. So I don't have a problem there, but certainly extending it to the rest of Waikiki, I think, is going to be a problem. And, of course, I'll defer to the area council members when we're talking about Makaha or Kuilima area. Um, you know, you're right. We still have to have hearings on this and talk about it amongst ourselves and get community input. And, you know, as council chair, I know you've got broader responsibilities, but, you know, just in your district, you know, the issue of this peer-to-peer car rental sharing issue has come up. uh, And I know you were trying to find a way to be able to crack down on some of these uh, uh, folks that have started to park these rental cars throughout the the neighborhood. And I think in in your district, that was where I think uh, some of the complaints first emerged. So uh, what did you find out? So I've gotten at least four complaints from community members about numerous cars being parked on the street. And I'm not just talking one or two. These these folks have fleets of rental cars because we're learning that you could make anywhere from $3,000 a month up towards $100,000 a year. So it's extremely lucrative. And those folks doing this know that. And they've increased their fleets. And that's a problem because parking, as you know, already is tough just for local residents to be able to park their cars and their kids' cars and whatnot. And just where I'm living in Kamaki, it's tough to find parking, especially with the businesses on Wailai Avenue um, parking on the side streets. So we're constantly competing for, for parking stalls. So when you have 
Arturo coming in and, and clogging up the streets, it's a huge problem. So the research that I did, I looked into this, and basically the city is preempted by state law. State law is a Motor Vehicle Rental Industry Act under Chapter 473D, Delta. And so, again, looking further into this, we, we found that there is a bill in the legislature that's still alive, House Bill 333, Senate Draft 2, that basically regulates these peer-to-peer car rentals. And by the way, it's a great idea to regulate these because, one, it makes sure that these cars have insurance. Could you imagine getting in an accident with an uninsured tourist and now you're left as a local resident holding the bag, holding the bill? So, so it regulates that, making sure that these cars are insured for bodily injury and property damage. It requires the peer-to-peer companies to do record-keeping. Again, I, I always think of the unintended consequence, right? What if somebody rents a car and goes and robs a bank? How are you going to know who owns that car if the record-keeping isn't there? So it requires them to keep record-keeping. It requires them to keep the car in safe running condition, right? You don't want unsafe cars on the road. It requires the driver to have a driver's license and be of legal age. Because if you don't regulate these things, you could have these, um, well, uninsured, unlicensed drivers driving unsafe cars. And of course, lastly, there is the rental car surcharge, right? They, they got to they gotta help uh, pay for all these city and state uh, roads and other things. So there's a surcharge on top of that as well. I know the state tax office was trying to be proactive. They put out a release, you know, earlier in the year saying, look, if you're you're doing this, just, you know, know that the taxes need to be paid. We'll see how that all plays out. But uh, so is there the rezo that you've introduced is, you know, what can we do uh, at the county level? Because it's not just here on Oahu, but, you know, the neighbor islands are seeing the same thing. Getting creative again. I'm looking at revised ordinance of Honolulu section 15 dash. 16.6. Sorry to get so technical on, on you and your listeners, but it's the storing uh, and parking of commercial vehicles. Basically, this regulates other commercial vehicles on city streets and basically says it's not allowed, but it doesn't include peer-to-peer. So I'm looking at amending this section to include peer-to-peer, basically prohibiting it. If you're going to do this, one, you got to park these these cars on your own property rather than on city streets. You know, you're running a business, you should have a place to store your vehicles rather than on city streets. Sometimes the city council can, can act much quicker because we're, we're year-round. So I'm, I'm currently drafting a bill directly dealing with this problem. And once it's drafted, I'm happy to share that with you and your listeners so we can get public input and testimony on on that bill. Clarification, though, uh, didn't you introduce something, though, that calls for working with the state lawmakers on this? Oh, oh absolutely. So I introduced a, a resolution asking the legislature to ba- pass House Bill 333. So House Bill 333 is that regulation bill that I just went through with Okay. You. So basically, it's a resolution asking them to pass it. It stalled last year in conference committee. And bills, as you know, are good for two years, so it's still alive. Mm, okay. The legislature actually could, once they come back into session in January, could, you know, revisit House Bill 333. But again, that's January, February, March at the earliest that they can take care of this. So I'm looking at revising our ordinance, just dealing with stored parking of commercial vehicles to see if we can regulate it. Like I said, we're, we're preempted by state law, meaning that state law takes care of re- regulating rental vehicles. The county cannot do it. Mm. But we can regulate who parks on city streets, and that's what I intend to do. 
That was Honolulu City Council Chair Tommy Waters talking to us this morning about the pending hotel room tax bill, the pending vacation rental bill, as well as efforts to manage the peer-to-peer rental car businesses that are operating in Oahu's neighborhoods. You are listening to The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. There are superheroes, and then there are the real heroes. They're the ones who make sacrifices for others, often at the risk of their own lives, and rarely ever get the recognition. Such is the case with one couple with Hawaii roots who saved several lives during World War II. He was born in Samoa, raised in Laie. She was from Kohala on Hawaii Island. They met while performing in a musical uh, troupe in Honolulu in the 1920s. He played the Hawaiian steel guitar, she sang and danced. They got married in 1928, right after leaving Oahu with the troupe to tour Asia. They spent the next several years performing around the continent, but by 1935, the troupe ran into financial trouble and disbanded. While most of the performers signed on with another touring act, this couple, along with their young son, formed their own musical act and continued touring through the Middle East and Europe. In the late 1930s, they became very popular in Germany, just as Adolf Hitler rose to power and World War II began. After witnessing the neighbors burnt alive by the Gestapo, the couple helped dozens of Jews escape Germany by dressing them up in stage costumes. The couple and their son eventually fled Germany for India. And for today's Backyard Quiz, do you know the name of this heroic couple? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at absenteeism in our public schools. Education reporter Suvan Lee joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. So we're talking absenteeism due to COVID. Right. So the story today focuses on the DOE's new attendance policy. Um, And so believe it or not, about nearly two months into the new school year, the DOE has actually created a fix for the attendance system in order to mark students excused when they have to quarantine due to COVID close contacts or being a positive case, of course. Before, there was no such option for teachers to log an absence. So automatically, these students' absences through no fault of their own or no sickness, possibly, um, were marked unexcused. So now we have a a new code that the DOE has created in its um, attendance system. So how did this come about? I guess, you know, I'm scratching my head thinking, well, wouldn't there normally be some kind of system in place to differentiate, you know, absenteeism, absenteeism you know, due to one thing versus the quarantine when you're not really sick? Right. So there are there there have always been um, permissible ex- um, reasons for an excuse absence, such as a child is ill or there is a activity that they have gotten advanced permission to attend outside um, during school hours. But 
Of course, in this new COVID COVID environment, um, there are new circumstances that have arisen, and one of them is quarantining. So if if a student, for instance, is seated next to a classmate who tests positive, well, as a close contact of that student, that person has to quarantine for 10 days at a minimum under the DOE's policy, and in addition to that, get tested three to five days after known exposure. So that's um, up to nearly two weeks or um, almost two weeks of school. Um, before pandemic times, we hadn't had such a you know situation. So this is a new circumstance that school districts all over the country have to grapple with. But for the DOE, at least, you know, the first day of the school year was August 3rd. But now we are almost October and they have um, come up with this fix um, now. And, and uh, how did this come about? How did they figure out that, okay, we need to be more specific? I think it was just the flood of parental uh, parent concerns. I think it was lawmakers uh, grilling um, a September 8th DOE briefing. In fact, to the House Education Committee, this was uh, raised by one of the reps, um, Representative Justin Woodson, who chairs the House Education Committee. He was um, talking to the interim superintendent and the deputy about um, concerns that he had regarding parents reporting letters of possible truancy being sent home. Um, You know, truancy is accrued through unexcused absences. So I think that once he started pushing the issue and the DOE has gotten complaints from families, to be frank, they had to do something. So this is a result, I believe, from that public pressure. Yeah, because I, I imagine when you when you hear the word truancy, right, truant, that maybe there's a stigma attached to that. And, and, uh, and, and in this, in some cases, there was probably a legitimate reason why they were absent. Absolutely. And I think that's the key. It's the legitimacy behind the reason. Not to say that missing school due to non-COVID related reasons isn't legitimate. Um, As we know, there's truancy and then there's chronic absenteeism. Truancy could mean you're just um, not going to school for whatever reason because you don't feel like it. Um, But that could very well end up in the court system. Chronic absenteeism is a specific metric that's designed around this accountability framework. So in Hawaii, the DOE defines chronic absenteeism as missing 15 or more school days out of a whole year. But really, that metric is supposed to pinpoint solutions or help schools pinpoint solutions to reach kids who are not coming to school. That could be for a number of reasons, due to health care, caring for a younger sibling, um, mental health reasons. I mean, there's a slew of reasons. So really, I think the idea behind logging absences, tracking absences across a school system is to see which schools, which student populations need the most support. If they can't get to school due to transportation, that's a whole other issue. So when it comes to the quarantining situation, at least there's this option for schools to note why they're not coming. Right. So uh, I guess uh, good on the lawmakers for kind of flagging it um, and say, hey, there's, you know, there's, this may have been an oversight, but there needs to be better detailing on why these kids are are not in class. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really does come down to tracking, better data systems, um, being nimble, um, the DOE just sort of, um, you know, adjusting its, uh, its routines to these new times, which does require a lot of flexibility and um, quick movements. Yeah, and uh, you know it is a it's the only statewide uh, system in the country, and uh, sometimes it you know moving the whole department like that is is uh, not as fast as someone like. But kudos on the yeah. complexes that are are managing this on their own. Thanks so Absolutely. much. Thanks so much, Suvan. <laughs> Thank you. That was education reporter Suvan Lee with today's reality check. Uh, check out her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years of serving Hawaii businesses and homeowners with a range of air conditioning and refrigeration products, supplies, and tools. CostcoHawaii.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, the U.S. is very rich. So why do we have so many poor children? Too often there is blame around poverty, like this is a choice. That's ridiculous. So what's Washington going to do about it? I'm honestly still surprised it's happening right now. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio.
beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The Great Wave off Kanagawa returns as the final installation in the exhibition Hokusai's Mount Fuji. On view now to October 3rd, honolulumuseum.org. know that Norway leads the world in electric vehicle use and the most popular EV there is U.S. made. It's Tesla. This happens to be Electric Vehicle Week and we talked to Tam Hunt of the Hawaii Electric Vehicle Association about what it's like to own an electric car. And he owns a couple. There's also an upcoming webinar this weekend about it. In Hawaii there are some 16,000 EVs across the state which puts it at, uh, at number two in the country behind California. And Ford just announced it is opening up three new EV battery factories, another sign that electric cars are the future. The new crop of vehicles uh, in the last couple of years have over 200 miles of range, and you can actually get some cars now up to 400 miles of range. And that's in about the same range as a normal gas vehicle, around 400 miles, right? So it's no different for those longer range vehicles than for a gas vehicle. If you are at the 200 miles or less, you know, range for an, a new EV. You've got to plan a little differently. Just make sure you can get to where you're going and get home. But you have um, a growing number of public chargers you can use. The difference, of course, is that it's going to take you longer to charge than the gas up. And so you got to make sure you can actually, you know, a lot the time required to charge if you're going across the island, for example, living here on the big island as I do. you got to make sure you might have half an hour to charge at a fast charger so you can get back over the, over the mountain. And what's the snapshot on the sales? Because I imagine on the Big Island, where you do have longer distances to travel, that maybe the buy-in is, is not where you want it to be because people are a little you know, hesitant. Yeah, well, overall, Hawaii is now actually in second place nationwide for uh, per capita ownership. It's gone up quite a bit in the last couple of years. We're behind only California, so we're doing quite well overall. We have 16,000 electric vehicles statewide compared to about a million total vehicles in the state. So it's definitely growing nicely, but it's still you know, way lower than we'd like it to be. We want to see that, of course, become 100% um, before you know a decade or two. And which, um, so, which island is leading? Oahu, definitely, um, in terms of you know just sheer numbers. In terms of per capita, I don't actually know that, uh, that information. Um, but statewide, Hawaii is doing much better than it was, and we're seeing a pretty nice you know, upward curve for adoption the last few years. I've had conversations with friends about electric cars and, and uh, some are worried about, you know, the concern over the batteries catching fire or maybe the car that they want to buy isn't sold in Hawaii. Yeah, the, the fire issue is certainly real. It's still very limited in number and overall EVs are far safer than regular gas cars. But the fire, you know, catching fire issue for some EVs is not a non-issue. You know, if you have a Bolt, for example, you would have gotten, as I do, you get a recall notice to bring it in and get it checked out to make sure it's not got the faulty uh, manufacturing that led to a few fires. You might have heard also there was a few Tesla fires. So these are happening, but they're generally quite low numbers. So you want to be aware of it and, you know, make sure that um, if you do have a recall, you get it checked out. But overall, it's not going to, in our view, affect the market adoption uh, because it is still very rare. Uh, in terms of finding the EV you want on the islands, um, it does vary by island, of course. Uh, Kauai, I think, has the biggest issues because they have smaller population and they're fairly remote. What you, you can do, though, I think with basically any vehicle you want, you can get a ship to Oahu or even to you know, a place like Kauai, which you have, of course, you know, boats that go there. And you can get the car you want. It might take a bit longer. So, for example, when I got my new uh, Tesla Model Y a few months ago, it took me three months to get it, partly because of the order time. Then also for the extra two weeks to ship it here. And I think it's actually another week to get it from Oahu to the Big Island. So it just adds a layer of complexity, but it's not a, not a deal breaker. And as far as, uh, let's say, repairs, you know, if, if you've got, let's say, you know, a new rollout, um, are you going to be able to find a place that can fix it? Well, that's always going to be a conversation with the dealer um, about your particular car. So, for example, my Chevy Bolt, which I bought in 20. Uh, 18, 
Um, I actually service it at the Toyota dealership in Hilo because um, Chevy just doesn't have the experience with electric vehicles, and Toyota does. So they have a deal with Toyota where basically if I have issues, I take it there. With my Tesla, which I just got recently, they actually have a, a traveling um, repairman who can do certain things. And then bigger things require you to take it to you know the, the shop of your choice. Um, I, had to, I had to get a towed recently. I got a flat tire, unfortunately. I had to get a towed into Lex Brody's in Pahoa, and that was because they couldn't come out to fix the tire. I wouldn't really expect for a normal car to have a you know a dealership come out to fix the tire at home. So it wasn't different than a normal car ownership. Interesting. Okay, so so it does vary based. Uh, it does vary island to island. It does, yeah, and by manufacturer. So who's number two? If Wahoo's leading in EV ownership, who's next? Maui? Oh, man, you got me again. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, actually, but I would guess it's Maui. Yeah. Okay. And Ma- Maui and the Big Island, of course, are about the same size population, but I think given that Maui is smaller, I would assume they probably have a bit higher ownership. And then I know there's been lots of talk about an electric pickup truck, and you know how people here in Hawaii love their pickup trucks, but some of the ones that I've seen are, are pretty pricey. Yeah, no, price is, you know, historically the biggest hurdle to people getting an EV. They have been more expensive historically. There's been a federal tax credit up to $7,500 for a number of years now. Uh, so, for example, my Chevy Bolt, it cost, I think, 36 when I bought it, but I got a 7500 tax credit, so it's below thirty because of the money that I had to pay because I get that money back uh, in terms of reduced taxes. That will apply to most of these pickup trucks coming out, like the Rivian and the Ford F-150 electric. It won't apply to the Tesla Cybertruck, darn, because I have one on order, (laughs) uh, because Tesla uh, actually has exhausted their limit for the tax credit because it phases out once you hit 200,000 vehicles sold per manufacturer. So both Chevy and Tesla do not qualify now for the tax credits. But, you know, Rivian and Ford, et cetera, do, Kia, et cetera, they all do so qualify for that nice tax credit. And we're also looking at legislation in Congress this year that may extend uh, that tax credit where it does apply again to Chevy and Tesla. And it might even increase. There's actually some discussion about the increase up to 12500 um, I'm not going to cross my fingers or hold my breath for that to happen. But if it does, it'll be a nice boost for the market. And what about the apartment dwellers? who may want to get an EV, but maybe they don't have a charger in their building. Yeah, um, this is a common question we get, and this is why we focus on public charging infrastructure in our work pretty frequently. There are public charges throughout the islands. You can go on apps like PlugShare. I think you'd even look in like Google Maps or Apple Maps and see where their charges are. And public charges are going to be either level two, like at the Target, you know, or Walmart, they have these level twos in the parking lot, or there'll be fast chargers, level three. Level twos will take about eight to 10 hours for full charge for most cars that are long range. That's, of course, not going to work for most apartment dwellers. That's not realistic. A fast charger can give you a full charge in an hour to an hour and a half, and we consider that to be realistic. You can go shopping and charge your car at the same time. But we fully acknowledge that most EV owners are still going to be homeowners, or they can charge at home. And that's really the sweet spot. You know, you charge overnight. It's like ch- charging your iPhone. You plug it in at night. Every day you've got a full charge. And this is very convenient. It's actually easier than having a gas car. You don't have to worry about going to the gas station ever. It's kind of nice. You can just ignore gas prices. And you can also get EV charging rates where you get a better price if you charge during certain windows. Like, for example, if you charge at home during daytime hours, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., we have a good problem in Hawaii. We have too much solar on the grid. And so, in fact, there's actually a really good discount for charging daytime in Hawaii now. So there's various ways you can do it, but we acknowledge fully that for now it's still a lot more convenient if you're a homeowner in terms of charging your EVs. Right. So that's going to be uh, still the challenge for uh, apartment dwellers. It is, yeah. And it's doable. Like, I actually I occasionally rent out my house here south of Hilo, and I live in a, a cabin. I have a little jungle cabin, and I don't have charging at home there. And so I kind of I, I do this partly so I can actually see what it's like to be an apartment dweller and not be able to charge at home. And I do, in those cases, charge a public infrastructure. And there are, in fact, public fast chargers in KL, close to where I live, in Hilo, in Pahoa, on the Kona side. 
various places around the island. So it's definitely doable, but you just have to be, you know, more conscious than owning a regular gas car because, of course, it's going to take you again an hour, hour and a half to charge fully if you're not charging at home overnight. If our listeners then have any questions, they can uh, sign up for your uh, webinar on Saturday? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we're celebrating the National Drive Electric Week. This is an annual celebration of electric vehicles. It's actually the 11th year now we're doing this. And we're looking at the um, EV charging issues and EV ownership issues um, this coming Saturday at 11 a.m. to sign up either at hawaiieb.org or the National Drive Electric website. You can find it easily by Googling it. And come and hear some great speakers to talk about what it's like to actually own an EV, looking at cost issues, charging issues, maintenance issues, which are, you know, really a dream for most EVs. They're far less than regular gas cars. And will that webinar be available afterwards? It will. Yeah, we post all our webinars afterwards. So if you can't make it, you can sign up for our newsletter to get a notification of those being posted online. Or feel free to reach out to us and we have to answer questions. That was Tam Hunt, director of the Hawaii Electric Vehicle Association. For links to that upcoming webinar, which happens Saturday, look for links at our website later today. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Carlos Amfroy, MD, ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, specializing in laser vision correction, cataracts, and diabetic retinopathy. The pandemic has made it hard to fly overseas, but for some passengers, just getting through airport security is challenge enough. There is such a strong sense among the trans community that when you go to the airport, you are likely to experience something dehumanizing or potentially violent. The invasive interactions trans people often experience at U.S. airports. It's on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. You know, this week, the American Institute of Architects Honolulu chapter kicks off its inaugural DNA Design and Architecture Conference. Today, we put the spotlight on emerging student designers as part of a global track program between the University of Hawaii and Tongji University in Shanghai. It's a three-year dual degree program, and the students won top honors in the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture. First place, an honorable mention. The challenge, rethinking work in a post-pandemic era. Here's Professor Clark Llewellyn. There were over 75 schools of architecture in, in uh, North America that were that entered. Over 1,200 students participated. Well, that's impressive. And I understand that there there were some challenges with this because, you know, we're in a time of COVID. Yeah, that was the main design problem that they asked for, was what would be, you know, what would the, a new workplace be like in a post-COVID era? And so students uh, tried to, well, like, we're in it, right? We're in a COVID era. So what's it going to be like? when it's post-COVID, and things are just probably, and we're sure, are not going to go back to where they were, much as we might like to think they are. And the workplace is one of them. Uh, that, that, that was the challenge of the competition. So the competition was actually thinking about what a workplace is and the challenges that we have, how people will get to work, because issues of mass transit, uh, driving in cars, uh, office places, cubicles that we see without ventilation, all that starts to become uh, an increased challenge uh, when you have, um, you know, pandemics that could be reoccurring around the world. So they really considered not just technology of steel who sponsored the competition. That was why it was a steel competition, that they put up some funds. And so the students did win a $4,000 cash prize. And, my, and myself, being the faculty member, i I was awarded $1,500, but I donated that to our, our foundation for the global track. And um, But the the program itself is they could choose any site in the world. And the winning site, they chose one in uh, Seoul, Korea. And they chose that just because they found that Korea itself is so high in, in technology and adapting smart cities and so on. Uh, and as well as they chose a site that was in a river, so it has to be dealing with rising sea levels. And there's some perspectives drawn, both ones that would be in the daytime, uh, in the summer, 
for the the users of the building or with their families out in the grass. So it's a it's not just a place to work, but a place that you can live and have families, have daycare, a place that you can recreate and, and, and live healthy lives. That's the intent of it. It's more than so we don't just have buildings or cubicles to work in, but really we have spaces that are much more parts of our cities and parts of our of our of our uh, social life as well as a place to, to work out, eat well, uh, and communicate. And then the island, is, is then there's another view of the program at night, but it's it's in high water because of recognizing that it's an area that can flood. And so it accommodates the rising rising waters and during the be and flooding and so on. And uh, rather than try and keep the water out, it, it lives with the water as it increases and gets deeper and, and creates a, another environment that's just as habitable. Well, you know, talk about the, the, the Global Track program, because folks may not know what's involved with that, you know, and, and uh, just the synergy that's involved, uh, that it entails. Yeah, well, it's a very, uh, we, the program is now a little over 10 years old. And it's one when, when uh, sort of when I was dean of the, of the School of Architecture and Initiated, we started reaching out to uh, Tongji University, which is one of the very best schools of architecture in China. And it's the only dual degree program in the United States that works with a foreign foreign university. We have a three-year program that leads to a doctor of architecture. During this three-year program, uh, students from Tongji University and students from UH, they spend their first year at their home institution. And then in the in the summer between, after the first nine months, our students will be placed in an office in Asia and the Pacific that deals with uh, global practice, so it's working internationally. And then the students will go to Tongji University in Shanghai, as well as we typically have a professor there, and one or two that might come go back and forth. And when the students are at Tongji, they, uh, for instance, this class had 12 students, six from Tongji and six from UHM. And so we we form a cohort there, and we work together. Uh, the students are taught design studio, uh, much like I did this year, only online. So quite uh, there typically would be in a studio at the university, and the students are also taking doing their master's thesis at Tongji and taking coursework in Chinese language and Chinese culture from Tongji itself. Hawaii offers the design studio, some technical courses, and some research. And then at the uh, the students complete their their written masters at the end of their of the second year, and then we spend a, a summer continuing in China, and then we uh, the students gain more practical experience at a design institute in China, which is a their quasi private and as well as government design firm. It's, it's they're different than architectural firms we find find here in the United States because they are tied in with the government or a university. And so it's a good opportunity for our students to experience that kind of, of uh, practical experience, how these, these you know, design institutes actually work by, by, being, uh, by, by spending time in them and, and, doing, and working with them. And then in the same time, the students from Tongji will go, they go to the mainland U.S., even here, and they work in an international firm, an American firm in New York or Boston or even Nashville, Tennessee, San Francisco, and they gain the summer experience. And then the, the six students from each all would come back here to uh, UH uh, and complete their third year and earn their Doctor of Architecture here in the U.S. So they have a credit master's degree in China that allows them, if they want to, to become a licensed architect in China. And they have a professional doctorate degree, which is the only one in the United States, uh, that allows them to practice architecture here in the U.S., they have to do training and as well as pass exams, but uh, at least the academic portion is there. It's a one cohort. They travel. They meet together. They work online their first year, and then second year they're normally face to face. But this year, of course, we've been all zooming, and <laughs> yeah. uh, so we had to work uh, especially hard this year to to work on making sure that it's an integrated cohort. Well, it paid off because you not only won first place in this competition, but we also got an honorable mention for another project. We had uh, three teams of of four students, and teams all had two students from UHM and two students from Tongji. 
Well, uh, the team that won, we had our UAM students. We had one that was here in Honolulu. One of them was from Ohio. And then the two Tony G students were both in China. So they were, they were working on almost 12-hour time difference between them. Of course, Honolulu is about in the middle of six each way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they had managed to coordinate and do their whole project, working probably one work at day and worked at night, and they can produce a lot when, when one's sleeping, the other one's working. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the Honorable Mention Project is flo- Floating Oasis. Yes, yeah, it's, it's one that's, uh, they chose a site that was in, in Shanghai, uh, on the, on the Bund River, uh, on the Bund there, and, uh, it was a, it was also a very strong project, uh, you know, and it too was one that integrated some old neighborhoods, California's, and healthy living, and so on. I think the one that won, we had no, pretty, almost no doubts within the teams or guest critics that we thought that, it, it was about as good as it could get. So we were very hopeful that it would win. <laughs> That's nice. And then I'm sure, though, this, you know, what these students have done this year means so much more to you. I mean, I understand, if I understand right, you were actually in China when this whole pandemic thing hit. Yeah, we were, we were on the first semester, just ended in mid-January, and I was getting ready to come back, and we had an apartment there, and the student did it. We were off all on break between semesters, and we never went back. So things were in apartments, computers were left there, televisions, medications, cameras, everything was there, and nobody's ever been back since. So we've had some things shipped, some things, my stuff is still in, finally moved to storage a few months ago. Wow. We were doing Zoom before UH was doing Zoom because China, it hit China first. And so uh, I know when we, we went uh, doing at UH, um, here I am probably the oldest one on our faculty, trying to give Zoom lessons to all of our faculty. <laughs> because I've been doing it for a couple, couple three months already. Well, it's an amazing story and um, a, nice, uh, a nice win. Congratulations to all the students involved. And uh, what a nice feather in the cap uh, for UH to win this award. We were talking to University of Hawaii Professor Clark Llewellyn, designing during these COVID times. For a look at the winning designs and the list of names of the nine architecture students, head to our website later today. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you if you knew the name of the heroic Hawaii couple who helped dozens of Jews, over 150 according to one version of the story. Uh, Apparently, this couple helped them escape from Germany at the outset of World War II. He was Samoan, grew up in Laie. She came from the Ka'ohu family in Kohala. They were part of a touring musical troupe that eventually disbanded while performing in Asia in 1935. Afterward, they formed their own touring act and added their young son to the lineup. They became very popular in Germany right around the start of World War II. In fact, one night after a show, they were said to be summoned to meet Adolf Hitler. Later, after learning the Gestapo knew they were helping Jews escape Germany, they fled. They tried to return to Hawaii, but the Pacific Ocean was closed for travel because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. They eventually settled in India for the rest of their war years. They had a daughter in 1945 who naturally became part of the act. They toured as a quartet through Europe, Japan, and Australia in the 50s and 60s and in the U.S. mainland in the 70s. But by the end of the decade, the whole family decided it was time to return to Laie. If you've never heard about this Hawaii couple before, now you know the story of Tao and Rose Moy the answer to today's backyard quiz and congratulations to our winner mike from kaimuki knew the answer that's today's quiz if you have an idea for one send it to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org
And finally today, we cover a lot of different topics on this show, and sometimes those topics prompt listeners to share their thoughts on the subject to our talkback line. Here's an email that we received after yesterday's show. I'm curious to see as to to why HPR continues the drumbeat that the drop in tourism here is all down to the governor. If one looks to the mainland, for example, the drop in Florida numbers for September or the drop in car rentals across the mainland in September, it looks like folks are simply not traveling as much anywhere in the U.S. It appears to me that the normal drop in tourism from the mainland at this time, which is usually cushioned by international tourists, has just been exacerbated. Perhaps a piece could be put together looking at various aspects of this rather than parroting the business community blame game. A related piece might be sussing out whether this short-term drop may in fact pretend a more permanent drop related to ongoing pandemic restrictions combined with climate change mitigation. After all, tourism here depends on air travel, a very carbon-intensive activity. Aloha, Dennis Michaud. You know, we're always looking for fresh angles on important topics, so thank you for your feedback, Dennis. And here's a voicemail that we received after last Thursday's interview about Ulu theft. Yeah, this is George from the Big Island, and I was listening yesterday, and your show was good. It went from the sublime, which is the Ulu man, who seems to know what he's talking about and doing, to the ridiculous, the artists. As somebody once wrote, it would be interesting to see these people working with their hands to feed their mouths instead of working their mouths to feed their fantasies of Mount Ikea and all those other things. Boomer man with what's what. Trust him. Okay, well, thanks for the message, George. If you have something to say about an interview you heard on the conversation, call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. Record something or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Okay, we're all pal for now. Tomorrow, we talk politics on the long view. Share your comments or questions about what you heard on our air by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.